Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. The people we have are magnificent and then we'll have some good discussion with the audience afterwards. So Robert Enright is the senior contributing editor to Border Crossings magazine and the university research professor in art theory and criticism at the University of Guelph. Thank you, Jillian. Um, we, we, are one, we were one fewer than we were going to be. There's a lesson in that, I suppose, about the car thing. It's kind of sad. But she should have been here earlier, so I hope she's wet. <laughs> Vengeance is ours, saith the Art Gallery of Ontario. Um, I'm delighted to be here tonight. I want to thank Alison and, and uh, I'm delighted you're here as well. And I'm particularly pleased because my colleagues, who will be doing most of the talking, um, are uh, two artists who I have uh, a large admiration for, and it, it'll be very interesting to get their perspective on uh, on Wengishimutu's show. Uh, how, just as a matter of interest, have many of you or all of you seen the show upstairs? I don't ever do show of hands, but if you nod, have a lot of you seen it? So that's good. So that even though you'll be seeing images, and those of you who don't, too bad, you'll you'll want to afterwards, I'm sure. Um, I'm going to do a really formal thing and actually read the uh, portions of the of the biographies that. Uh, that were sent to both Alison and Dion sent to me. Um, and then just say a few words about, uh, about Mutu and, and then uh, we'll invite Alison up here. Alison Mitchell is a self-described maximalist artist working in sculpture, performance, installation and film. She melds feminism and pop culture to, in her terms, trouble representations of women and contemporary ideas about sexuality, autobiography and the body. She's involved in an ongoing aesthetic and uh, political project called Deep Les. Um, which advocates a strategic return to the histories of radical and lesbian feminisms. She's exhibited her splendid work in museums and art galleries across Canada, the United States, Europe, and Asia. Um, I've seen her work in, in a number of galleries. Uh, she's shown at MOCA here in Toronto, uh, at the Warhol Museum, at the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis, and the British Film Institute. She's also, of course, a filmmaker. And her lady Sasquatch, those uh, extraordinary creatures, um, have been sh uh, shown at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, at the Lethbridge Art Gallery, at the Cambridge Galleries, and at AKA Gallery in Saskatoon. It's in Saskatoon, isn't it? Where's AKA? Yeah, right. I should know that. I'm from there. But they keep changing the name of things in Saskatoon. Uh, she's also a writer and, a, and an editor. Uh, and she is also has a pedagogical role that she plays quite importantly at York University where she's the assistant professor in the School of Women's Studies. And recently she attended, which is a lovely word, she attended uh, the Canada Council uh, studio in New York. How long were you there? Wow, that's great. Six months in New York. Dion Brand is the poet laureate of this city. Um, should be for others, and if, if it were a decent world, she would be, but we'll work on that. She's written nine volumes of poetry, uh, four works of fiction. For her poetry, she's, of course, won the Governor General's Award, the Pat Lowther Award, and the Trillium Prize, and for her fiction, she's been the recipient of the Toronto Book Award. She's also the University Research Professor, Research, I'm sorry, Chair and Professor in the School of English and Theatre Studies at the University of Guelph. Um, Dion's most recent book, uh, which was just released a, a month or so ago, I think, the launch, Ossuaries, um, uh, is an extraordinary book. Um, it is lyric and ferocious and passionate, and it's one of the best books of poetry I've read in, in 20 years. So go and buy it and read it. Um, 
and that's an order. It's a magnificent book. She may be one of the finest poets writing in the language. The language we're speaking here today, by the way, she may speak other languages too. So I'm first of all going to welcome Alison up here uh, to talk about a specific aspects of uh, Wangeshi Mutu's work, and then Dion will come up, and then uh, I'll just uh, come up here as well and start to ask questions. Just a few things quickly. Um, the, the intriguing thing for me about Mutu is that she deals with the notion, obviously, of beauty and its, its obverse or its, its other aspect, and that is, in some senses, the grotesque. And I, the more I've looked at her work over the years, um, and it hasn't been that long, uh, Wangeshi was born in, in Kenya in uh, 1972. She studied in Wales, then went to New York, where she studied at Cooper Union, where she did a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts. And then she went to Yale, where she did her degree in sculpture. In sculpture, interestingly enough, a, large, a lot of her pieces, as you can tell from upstairs, are installations. Um, and she graduated in 2000, so she's really only been in the, uh, the uh, art world uh, for nine or 10 years now. But she began to exhibit almost immediately upon leaving Yale, and even, I think, when she was there. Um, but in looking at her work, uh, and we had interviewed her in Border Crossing some uh, two or three years ago, she has an extraordinary ability to use collage in a way that is, I think, almost unprecedented. There's something about the subtlety of the disruptions and then the recombinations that, that is really, I think, unique among um, collages. Uh, my colleagues may have a different opinion of that, but I mean, I've seen lots of Hannah Hawk and Hartfield uh, and other people who work in the area of collage, which after all is a very interesting art form itself. And I think that Mutu is, has a, a, a remarkable ability to do something quite subtle uh, and, and dangerous in lots of ways in what she's doing. We'll talk about, I think, I hope as the panel goes on, about what the nature of that danger is, by the way. Um, because she obviously, the nature of her representation touches on a whole series of aspects from post-colonialism to pornography um, and to the notion of repurposing. And I'm really delighted tonight that, that these two are going to handle, uh, deal with all of those questions and many more. So please join me in welcoming to begin with um, our first speaker. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what Alison's going to talk about, so I'm interested. So please welcome Alison Mitchell. Okay. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here at the AGO speaking about such an incredible, powerful, exhibition, and I was very lucky to have my work included along with Wangeshi Mutu's work in a, a large group exhibition in New York at the David Nolan Gallery and the Francis Nauman Gallery. The exhibition was called The Visible Vagina. Uh, and like, like Mutu's work, uh, my work jumps off from a starting point of the centerfold and images of women in pornography. I'm going to show you some images of my work to um, contextualize it within, uh, and then I'll show you Mutu's work that I'm going to speak about. Uh, this is a piece that I did called Shibaka, taking a centerfold image and making it into a Sasquatch. Like Mutu, I also use MacTac magazines and other materials to collage with. This was a revenge collage I did on a Toronto uh, journalist who was mean to me in the Globe and Mail a few years ago. Uh, and here's a piece that shows some um, MacTac collage work that I did in, um, as part of an installation. Like Mutu, I'm also interested in uh, unexpected environments and implicating the viewer in the work. This is a maybe not so great image of, oh, it's weird and off to the side, that's why. 
sorry about that, but this is a, an image of an installation I created that was in New York with Mutu's work called The Hungry Purse, The Vagina Dentata in Late Capitalism. And it's a space that people enter into. And finally, um, like Mutu, I'm also interested in the monstrous, the abject, and figuring out ways to reconstitute the monstrous for feminist purposes. And this is a close-up of one of my large-scale Sasquatch sculpture faces, the scariest one, I like to think. Um, so the similarities between Mutu's work and mine is that um, it's, it's hybrid in terms of its sources and materials, but it's also hybrid in terms of the creatures that she and I depict, these half-animal, half-people creatures. Uh, and also it's hybrid in terms of its meaning. Um, the work can't be put into one place and it has to be talked about in the round in the way that Mutu's work cannot simply be described as um, in, in, one, in one simplistic way. I'm gonna start by talking about one of Mutu's images. This is a, a scan from a book I have uh, of Mutu in a self-portrait. And I just want you to look at some of the elements that are in this image. You see the fruits, the textures, the materials, the fabrics, the three-dimensionality of the photograph. Um, you can see uh, the jackfruit, the breadfruit. Her foot is touching the dragon fruit. And um, she's in a colonial setting, in a, in a sense. It feels sort of like a parlor. And you know, they've got this prim armchair in the back. And um, it's also full of animals that have been killed and turned into uh, fabrics and rugs. And in the corner, the bottom left corner, it, you can't, it's kind of a bit cut off in the image, but it's a, a pile of a white afghan uh, that looks like um, viscera, looks like guts. And her hands are dirty and sticky with the fruit, and her feet are wet, and her gaze is slightly confrontational. It's returning the gaze anyway. She's looking right back at you. And her pose is not uninviting. Even though it's sort of chopped off a little bit in the middle, you can see where I've pasted the two sides of the image together. But I wanted to use this self-portrait as a mapping moment to talk about Mutu's personal vocabulary and to use the, um, this photograph to question whether or not the other works in the exhibition uh, are self-portraits self in a sense. And what caused me to wonder this is some of the titles of the work. They say, they're titles that say things like Riding Death in My Sleep or Sleeping Sickness Saved Me. Um, I, another one is I Have Peg Leg Nightmares or I Shake a Tail Feather. There's a lot of references to her own experiences, whether real or imagined. And, um, as, and there's references to the experiences of other women. It seems like in the work there's a willingness in, to share an iconography of female bodies, to share an iconography of death, to share an iconography of trauma, and to share an iconography of shame. And I mean, in, in relation to talking about shame, there, there's a discourse that already exists for black female bodies, hypersexualized, available, receptacle, servile. In, because of the colonial constructs of gender, race, and culture, the gaze of a million real and imagined eyeballs that is the legacy of history are always on the 
black female body. And it could be argued that the racialized female figure is the most vulnerable receptacle to um, global forces of war, pollution, racism, and misogyny. But I think that by making these forces public, by putting them in the gallery, somehow Mutu is changing the meaning associated with these bodies. They're no longer individual, they're no longer private or personal or sh shameful in that sort of secretive sense. It's collective, and in a way, it's a shaming of society. I wanted to quote uh, Eve Sedgwick, who's a theorist who's written about shame, and she says, shame effaces itself, shame points and projects, shame turns itself skin side out, shame and pride, shame and dignity, shame and self-display, shame and exhibitionism are different interlinings of the same glove. Shame, it might finally be said, transformational shame, is performance. So there is a performative element to Mutu's work, in the, particularly in the videos that you see in the exhibition, cutting and cleaning earth. But also I think it, the, 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 the pieces in the gallery and the installation is performative as well, in that she's making the private public, that she's pushing the inside to the outside. She's taking images from pornography that are generally meant to be consumed in private and reconstituting them. She's uh, taking the inside of bodies and showing them on the outside. The, the, the hybrid creatures, those great big pieces, are really about taking the guts and, and, making, and putting them on the outside of the body as well as showing the exterior of the body. It becomes unclear of what's inside and what's outside. So uh, it seems as though the racialized female figure as lover, giver, receptacle is still here, but it's transformed to inhabit a possibility of predator or even avenger. And there is, I feel, an, a, an element of revenge in the pinup mutants and survivors of violence that is material and psychic that come through these images. These are um, strikingly familiar poses of pinups, but there's something very different that's happening here. The invitation to consume the figure. Oh, here's some more of the collages. This is out of order a little bit. There's another piece that this is what I want to speak about directly. Um, it's a familiar pinup pose, but the invitation to consume the figure, it feels comes with consequences. You can see one of her hands is a bloody stump. The other one, the fingers are chopped off and there's blood running down the hand. It's like the revenge is that the viewer is asked to look at an image that they're really used to reading. They're very literate with, it's very familiar, but what they're asking to mount are stumps and calloused ends and bubbling scabs. It feels like um, she's, trying to prove or question or challenge um, male sexuality and is almost asking, you know, my hands are chopped off, my leg is a bloody stump, um, and, and you still want to fuck me? Feels like the question that these pornographic images are asking, not that images are pornographic, but pulling the, the centerfold out of the sexualized images. It feels like something that Valerie Solanus would get up to. You know Valerie Solanus, the, um, she wrote the book, The Scum Manifesto. 
the Society for Cutting Up Men. She's the woman who shot Andy Warhol. I'm going to read a quote from the Scum Manifesto. These are her words. She says, and she's talking about male sexuality. She says, eaten up with guilt, shame, fears, and insecurities, and obtaining, if he's lucky, a barely perceptible physical barely perceptible physical feeling, the male is nonetheless obsessed with screwing. He will swim through a river of snot, wade nostril deep through a mile of vomit if he thinks there's a friendly pussy awaiting him. He'll screw a woman he, despi he despises, any snaggletooth hag, and furthermore, pay for the opportunity. Why? Relieving physical tension isn't the answer, as masturbation suffices for that. It's not ego satisfaction. That doesn't explain screwing corpses and babies. Very powerful, furious, angry words. And um, I feel like these mutant sex workers are also making a similar kind of challenge to, um, to male sexuality that Sol Solanus is making. And it feels like Solanus's and Mutu's work comes out of the real society that we exist in, which is the Society for Cutting Up Women. And if I offer some depressing statistics about violence and rape, in Canada, more than half of all rapes of women occur before the age of 18, and 22% of these rapes occur before the age of 12. And women who have been raped before the age of 18 are twice as likely to be raped as adults compared to those who, without a history of sexual abuse. It has been estimated in the Bosnian War that between 20,000 and 50,000 women were raped. And they weren't just raped, they're also their bodies were mutilated. Um, there's been accounts of women's breasts being used as trophies on tanks and trucks. And um, women were gang raped in streets, in their homes, and in front of family members. Violence occurred in, in lots of ways, including rape with objects like broken glass, bottles, and guns. And uh, similarly, in, during the Rwanda genocide, from April to June 1994, it's been estimated that 250,000 to 500,000 Rwandese women and girls had been raped. I feel that Mutu's work that comes out of the consciousness of these cultures of genocide, violence, and rape. The, they're maimed beings that are half animal and half human. And um, I mean, some of them even seem, they don't seem primitive or, or they don't seem uh, historic, they don't seem old fashioned. They feel like uh, future bodies. They don't look like they're from the past, but from the future. And Donna Haraway in her 1991 Cyborg Manifesto writes, she, she talked about the cyborg, she talked about the human-animal-machine hybrid. And she writes that the stakes in the border war have been the territories of production, reproduction, and imagination. She argues for the pleasure in the confusion of boundaries and for responsibility in their construction. And this is what seems to be happening most clearly in pieces like this one. The, the, the large-scale pieces that Mutu's created where um, 
there's these elaborate bodies where limbs are replaced with cyborg machine parts and motorcycle parts where bodies seem to come undone. And um, there's a, 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 an internal organs you see on the outside like, a, like an avatar. I wanted to ask the question if, um, if the work were a film rather than visual art, how would it be categorized? Would it be categorized as pornography? Would it be categorized as horror? Does it seem more like science fiction? I wonder if it would be ac executed with actors or with drawings and in illustration like an animation. I think it would be an animated collage. And Mutu's work is, are these master collages that pulls from other sources. And this sort of collage work has a long history. Um, Robert mentioned Hannah Hawke's work, uh, Barbara Kruger, Martha Rosler, Betty Sayer. I mean, arguably this is more of an assemblage, but uh, a collage of different images. And this is her revenge of Aunt Jemima from 1972. I, I wanted to talk about collage in particular, and hopefully this can come up more in the conversation, because I was thinking about um, Audre Lorde's a uh, famous quote where she says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I know she wasn't talking specifically about visual art, but I wonder if it may be up for discussion in this case, in Wengechimutu's case, where um, I wonder how Audre Lorde would see this work. If she may think that it's more possible than it used to be to use some tools of the master to dismantle the master's house. That because Mutu seems to be using pornography, the ultimate, one of the ultimate master's tools to um, create something different. And there's a real difference between these centerfolds or pinups and the all-American pinup that arches her back and sticks her tits out and sucks in her stomach, the kind that lives in lockers and sticky page magazines and on digitally cold websites. This loaded icon recognizes the power of sexuality, and I think it's influenced by evolutions of feminist thought in the postmodern era that isn't just strictly dismissing pornography or wanting to get rid of pornography. It's using it um, as a force to complicate pornography. I'm going to quote Mutu. She, in an interview, she actually spoke about the, her use of the pinup, and she says, my personal views as a feminist, as a woman, as a maker of images seem to clash with most of the characteristics of these messed up bells. She's talking about pinups. I remember I was very nomadic at the time. She's talking about when she started using the pinups and using the subway. I'm not suggesting that it was a direct lift, but I was obsessed with the defacement of posters and celebrities, celebrities that seems like a cosmetic social contract between a primal, psycho-destructive expression on public space and a convoluted paper doll game. I can't think of a better use for, uh, that's the end of the quote, and I can't think of a better use for shampoo ads, sex postcards, lipstick spreads, and eyeballs than to cut them out of magazines and create creatures like this, or to mess them up like this from the, this is one of the pinups from the mud series where she's half covered it in what appears to be mud or melting skin. 
And other artists have used the pinup. There's a history of artists using the pinup. This is a really bad JPEG of Annie Sprinkle's postmodern pinups. Hannah Wilkie's troubling of the pinup and what it represents. And Renee Cox's Venus of Hot and Tot pinup pin remix. And when people ask me why I use Playboy cartoons and centerfolds, I usually talk about how, it, oddly enough, Playboy was one of the first places where I found positive images of fat women um, that I'd ever been able to find before. I've done a lot of activism and work around troubling body image and size acceptance and found these really beautiful, powerful images in Playboy, and I don't. I and I think that's the, these artists are using that as a strategy, using those those images and recognizing their the power that they have. Um, Mutu's pinups seem to be fabricated from uh, not only Playboy and sex ads, but also when they're mashed together, they look like um, they're, you know, fabricated from the remains found in sewers, landfill sites, toxic waste, um, interior design. It's a complete mashup. And the oozing doesn't necessarily come out of the usual places that bodies open up, but from sores and punctures and bodily ruptures. And as you know from seeing the exhibition, that Mutu also invades the space and, um, the work occupies an eroding, infected, and wounded space. This, it, a soundtrack for the work may include screams from a, the, the tortured web of history, but at the same time, there's a kind of a dance that's happening with many of the figures. Some, there's a lot of joy in the images, a lot of pleasure. It's like a mutual frolic. And Michael E. Veal calls this, uh, he's speaking about Mutu's work in particular, and he calls it the ecstatic aesthetic of trauma the ecstatic aesthetic of trauma. Because there's something that seems to be dying in the work. Something's dying in order for something new to live. The installations, this is one of her installations from a piece called Exhausting Gluttony, feel like slaughterhouses. They can feel like the abattoir. But it's almost as though it's not a slaughterhouse for animals or for people necessarily, but for it's a slaughterhouse for dominant modes of thinking, for idea, ideologies of war, ideologies around consumption of women's bodies. Mutu's work makes it possible to talk about the new by animating those ideologies. So while the work, work is occupying both spaces, it's uh, animating those atrocities of racism and colonial, colonialism and misogyny, but it's also opening them up so they act as a slaughterhouse. And I think that the hope is to scare you into imagining new ecologies that may appear to be dysfunctional because of the distortion of what is supposedly beautiful, but is actually an imagining of other possibilities that allow for thinking our ways out of dysfunctional societies that we're still a part of. So something that's whole comes out of all these pieces. The title of the exhibition, You Call This Civilization, is a question that she's asking the viewer to 
um, seems that they're asking, she's asking us to question the very foundations of culture. Another piece with the title, um, Try Dismantling the Little Empire Inside You. Try Dismantling the Little Empire Inside You. It's a useful title for talking about her work because in order to view her work, you have to do the same thing. You have to really, to get the work, I think you have to dismantle your own empires, which is a very tall order. Um, I'm actually at the end of my discussion, but I wanted to end with a quote from Gloria and Zeldua. And she says, for positive social change to occur, we must imagine a reality that differs from what already exists. Activism is the courage to act consciously on our ideas, to exert power in resistance to ideological pressure, to risk leaving home. I'm gonna leave you with that and hopefully we can talk about it more in the discussion afterwards. Thank you. Hi. Um, how are you doing? Uh, I'm a techno fool. So, <laughs> so what do I do now? <laughs> okay. All right. The button. Press the button. Okay. Thank you. I want to talk about um, a particular piece in the exhibit. Can you hear me? Yeah? Um, and the piece is called Sleeping Heads. Um, and I'm particularly fascinated with this piece. Uh, we would have a very short conversation, I think, if all these collages signified was the violence of race and gender. They do, of course. Um, that the violence of race and gender is the invisible ideological frame of all of our lives is the real conversation, I think. Uh, these collages do not present a, a kind of subjective, irrational, and unusual catastrophe, much as we want to think of it that way, um, a particular catastrophe that happens in some people's lives. Um, but I think they represent a large, objective, everyday, convenient and near overwhelming catastrophe, so overwhelming that it is convenient, in fact, to see it as singular, immoral, and subjective. Or else, I think our material world would come apart. I'm not interested in Mutu's work as resistance. to that sort of unusual catastrophe. Or as representation of resistance, or as anti-imperialist, or as spectacle. Um, and the reason why I'm not interested in her art as resistance, or in that category, is that you know all art is resistance. So we should have an end to, uh, to that word as a kind of signifier for the work 
by people who apprehend this economy of violence that we live in the world. And people who take it on consciously in their work. Um, now I recognize that that narrative of, of looking at work through race and gender is one that many of us have been active in constructing because it needed to be constructed at a certain point. Um, but I think it's become a kind of totalizing and we, we have to now pick it apart again to see what its component parts actually are so that it doesn't simply sort of run as a kind of mantra. Otherwise we'll say, okay, just one painting. What, what, you know, what's the difference, yes? Um, so, so when I look at Mutu's work, and for the purposes of this presentation of mine, I want to look at it minutely and you know, in a very, very small way. So when I look at Wangechi Mutu's work, I'm more interested in the translucency, um, the kind of luminosity, the transparency and the permeability of the surfaces of her work, the skin of the work, uh, more so than the spectacles of attack or dis-ease, which are superficially apparent, which are the occasion that, that bring us to the, to the work. Um, I'm less interested in the destruction than what survives it, less interested in the wound than what grows to surround it. Because there is something the bullet holes and the gouges have not been able to eradicate in the collage, else the collage would not appear. Or there is something that sustains the collage's bandages or envelops or absorbs the attacks. Like that's the being I'm interested in. Um, this I think is the source of wonder and beauty that is the collage, the painting, and the query that these collages pose. So you, you say most of you have, have seen the exhibit, yes? So in this, in this exhibit of heads, what I see, of what she calls sleeping heads, what I see is the kind of virtuosity of each head, and I want to kind of go through each head. Um, what each head is able to collect in dream, to repair, in combination with the unavoidable wound, that the fact that grace seems a quality of each of these heads is surprising, given the aggressions performed on them, that they seem alive despite the sickness of their world is remarkable, that they seem in motion on an unascertainable trajectory is in a sense our good luck <laughs> and our salvation. But first let me address the wall. The blue, since it was blue before it was punctured, it was the sea, perhaps, or the sky, or a wall, but blue. 
the damage has not erased the wall. The wall has nevertheless stayed something of itself, despite the gouging. I suppose I'm in a mood to say today, I'm not often in this mood, uh, to say today, look how the wall stands, rather than look how the wall is wounded. Um, or can I say that the wall is wounded and stands, stands differently but stands. The aggressor did not have enough bullets to destroy the wall. The efforts at aggression are concentrated in the middle and peter out. The wounds are rusted, but the wall is blue today. While Wangechi Mutu gives us the wounds, she gives us the wall. And I think in each of the sleeping heads, there is this little contradiction too, or this ambivalence, or this momentary suggestive space. The eyes of most of the sleeping heads are open. One has the sense of watchfulness, or wakefulness, or trance. Sleeping, yes, but a wary kind of slumber. I note the embryonic, translucent skin in all the work, suggesting a possible self, a possible composition or recomposition, subsumed or not yet apparent, or gestating. There is also a material like dirt present, or is it congealed blood? The details are important. All the accounts I've read of the work uh, squash the images that appear in the sleeping heads together. Um, so people say things like, uh, several arms and hands that lie across a fourth figure's open mouth, cheek and throat, reference Africa's children and adults who have been mutilated because they refuse to mine diamonds or fight soldiers. Well, I suppose that's an explanation. Um, but I want to be much more detailed in in each, because there is a kind of totalizing, generalizing narrative that takes place across these bodies. And so that's why I want to take each, each head and look at it specifically. So I want to separate the instances in each head. So, one. Um, there's the sort of material of earth or congealed blood in it. Then there's the white ear, uh, a long lash reaching out, uh, curling out, an eye, a white hand with an ornate ring on it, and a severed finger seeming to indicate a price paid for a commodity or a bauble. Um, but there's an old hand at the arms here, at the arm of the sleeping figure with a rag, and one wonders for what? For cleaning or for caressing? So this is the little liminal strange moment in the painting, in the collage. And again, that translucency of skin. And I know that some have interpreted that as a kind of disease or disease. 
but I think it's, you know, there's a kind of embryonic or cellular level at which that, those areas of the paintings exist, and, and they suggest a kind of other possibility. I love this one. Um, I think this head is in, in process of a kind of really striking and aggressive self-composition. Uh, this is the driftwood of the jaw. As if missing something to configure itself as human, the figure has appropriated a facsimile. An iguana from the mouth to the ear why not? The ear is newsprint. The one eye closed. The body again translucent. Spatters of blood from the forehead where the eye appears intact, signaling the presence beneath the complications. I mean, look at that eye. You know? So I think this, this body, this sleeping head, is in um, collecting anything to make itself uh, possible. Three, uh, the ear again. Always the ear in, in, in these heads, one ear, very prominent. Um, so indicating a kind of awareness at, a, at the level of sort of frequency or something. Um, the motorcycle mechanism there, mechanism of flight or it's mechanized certainly and it's, you know, but, but what does the mechanization suggest a kind of flight, I think? Um, the white marble-like skull in the middle, and the same cellular translucency of the skin. I mean, I see in all these heads a kind of battle to, to become, uh, even as one has to ingest the the aggressions of the world. Um, here, uh, the cactus, the tiger skin, the plant, heliconia or epiphyte, uh, the hawk, protective or predatory, the hands with the red nail polish and pearls, the one eye, The figure in traditional dress painting the face of another without a body. I think, are the sleepers collecting what can be collected? Which choices are free and which are unavoidable? Which are nightmares? So as the world of experiences go by, what do I collect? to be safe or sane, what, what can I not avoid? 
having uh, stuck to my body? Uh, which are the nightmares? And from where? And whose nightmares are they? Those are the questions I think that the pieces pose. In this sleeping head, uh, the shroud, the hands extended, uh, the blue legs, the blue shadowed eyes, the blue motorcycle, the ample behind, um, the blue high glassy heels, the two eyes, now both eyes, one direct, um, one disappointed, the lips in a kind of disaffected curl. There's a vibrant, active sleep going on here. The blues here are body and dismissive. And now there are two eyes looking down in this collage. Uh, the bone with teeth or claw. And then there is an exultant woman at the chest of the figure. This one is much used, so I don't, I don't comment on it. That might mean something, but anyway, okay. <laughs> and this, the last figure, um, the sleeping eyes. Um, the hand, though, reaching out, climbing out of, climbing out, it seems, of the chimera, the, the kind of, there's a, there's a way in which this hand is pressing itself out, some, something trying to get out of that figure, out of that dream nightmare. Um, the animal bone of the jaw. There's a woman here as fossil, though not skeletal, found with other fossils of plants. She is clutching one breast. The heads themselves, now how do I go back to the wall? Which button? Okay, sorry. Do you want to go back to the wall? Yeah. The heads are contained in a frame. Each head is contained in a frame, almost like a cache or display case, signifying the, the publicness, I think, of certain bodies, their museum value, their, their anthropometry, um, the kind of, their, they are in these encasements to be uh, observed, to be examined also, um, pinned to the wall. They are there, it seems to me, without their permission. Nevertheless, they are engaged in a clear self-composition, uh, using what materials they have. Depending on where we locate ourselves, we can see them as finished or unfinished. Their translucence gives them a kind of roiling aquatic quality and uh, gives their activity within the casement, within the cache, um, 
a, an alive, a sense of, of, of aliveness. So the exhibit is not a, an exhibit of a dead subject, but of a live subject. One gets the sense that if one goes to look at them tomorrow, they will have changed again. So I'm really interested in the end in those spaces in, in this work. The spaces that the spectator has no control of. The spectator can identify certain objects, but those objects within the heads or within the dreams seem to me uh, constantly moving and adapting and uh, enclosing and enveloping what happens to them and reproducing something, always on the point of trying to figure out what to be, what to be outside of that, outside of the, the look of the spectator, or outside of the aggressions of the world. Um, I find this particular installation, you know, beautiful, and I find no contradiction between saying that of the uh, saying that about what is presented here or what is portrayed here, um, as a as a poet myself, I find myself constantly trying to make kind of beauty out of what we got. So, <laughs> so it doesn't seem to me. Uh, so this seems to me really interesting. I really do think that these figures are constantly alive. And that if you do go like tomorrow, that'll, that'll change completely. And it changes completely because there are two things going on, not merely the, uh, the, the, the moves of aggression against uh, these bodies, but also the ways in which these bodies address that aggression. And those spaces are represented by the kind of translucence of the, the translucent quality of skin and the, the kind of uh, ways in which the, the material that Wangechi Mutu uses to compose uh, what would what what looks ordinary like empty space in the in the in the construction of the sleeping heads. So that's all I have to say. Actually, we'll talk some more after. Quick, quick thing, Dion. Yeah. You're talking about something way more subtle than the aestheticization of violence, aren't you? I mean, that's, that's, yeah. a, that's just the surface of what we, we apprehend in looking at this. You're literally trying to find what some membrane between the inside and outside, as if it's some, some special place in there, that the, what the infamous, what, what you know, Duchamp almost talks about yeah. that place. And there's one yeah. corner of one of those pieces that looks like the the Duchamp crotch from Etant Donné, which, which I, I hadn't noticed before you showed it. But I wonder if, I wonder what's the space you're looking at, and you're not simply yeah. going after this idea of making the horrible pretty. Not at all. I mean, I think there's a, well, I think there's a presence. There are presences in each of the works that are not merely presences that only are, are um, that only receive aggressive acts, yeah? But there are uh, 
that there's someone else being constructed. There's self-construction going on, even as, um, even as attacks are being fended off. But there is something else going on there. And I think that, I really think that, you know, that there just is that space where that's happening, even as constantly that those characters, those heads must deal with what comes at them. They must quickly reorganize, renegotiate, not only, not, and not simply in reference to the spectator, but in reference to themselves, mm -hmm. what they might be. I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but yeah. It's interesting, your sense, and I, I think that you get at this as well, that there's a way in which it's almost as if it's a becoming thing. I mean, I, I'm struck yeah. over and over again, having seen this exhibition now three or four times, it is a different one each time you see it, and it's not that I'm bringing that much of a different sensibility to it. Clearly, yeah. it's saying something different each time. Do you, do you get a sense that it's, that it's a very complicated read? Because in some ways, your articulation of some of the issues that come out is pretty straightforward, hard-assed. But obviously, you also have a kind of dense read of this work. What part was the straightforward hard-ass? Well, just the, the sheer, the, the, the violence, right. the, the, you know. I mean, in a way, it's interesting that, that even though there are very few men in the work, mm -hmm. there's an Egon Schiele self-portrait, there's mm -hmm. a, a very hirsute male upside down in one of the faces, and every mm -hmm. once in a while there are men. But men are absent, and yet what they have done is evidenced throughout this work. So mm -hmm. in a way, they're, they're the present mm -hmm. absences. But I, so that sort of thing is straightforward. But, but mm -hmm. I like your, the density of your read as well, and I might want to get you to talk a little bit about that, especially in the, the familiarity of the, of, the, of the gesture, the ty uh, typology of the body and yeah. how it talks to us. Yeah, and um, the, well, like I, I was saying that the, those ways of women presenting their bodies is so familiar to us from mm -hmm. the seemingly banal mm -hmm. fashion magazines to pornography. Whether you read pornography or not, or engage mm -hmm. with pornography or not, you still know those images, yeah. right? It's not like it's something we've never seen before. But even though I don't know pornography in that kind of way, I know those images. And, but I also know something different is happening with what she's doing with them. And I like what you're saying about men not being represented, but always extremely present in the artifacts and in the processes of violence that, that she's addressing in the work, but also in the gaze that I was talking about yeah. on, on, on the female body that constructs it in that kind of way. I love that phrase, the gaze of a million eyeballs. It's <laughs> pro probably more than a million. I figured yeah, a kajillion. I should have said a kajillion. Do, do both of you sense that, that uh, of the work, if we, if we sort of parse the work separately, it is the room, the arc, the vitrine room, in which the, the gestures are most familiar, isn't it? Even though in some ways they're the most radical collages. Mm. Uh, and and now, mm. that's part of the gift that interests me about her is that it is extremely radical disjunctions in the, the vitrines, you know, the ones with the arc. I mean, and yet every one of those, I have a friend who said that the museum should have put a sign warning kids for going in there because it really was the room in which the pornography was, which is very interesting because there's very little sexual parts that you can actually recognize in uh, that work. Is there a warning, a didactic no, or anything? No. Was there any discussion about there being that, that happening? No. 
Yeah, I wasn't raising it as, as, a, as a criticism, but just that no. it is that work that yeah. seems so directly sexual, and yet if you actually take it apart, it's not. And I guess it's because she's been able to get the poses in a way. We recognize the, the way it looks to us. And I would say that the hybrids also um, stand and sit and yeah. lay back in those poses as well. But there, there's so much going on with the, um, the hair and the fur and the tentacles that they become always recognizable but less present than they are in the smaller I think she collections. did a lot of difficult work in that room in the sense of, yes, the gesture is um, apparent right away. And as you say, we all know that gesture because that gesture is doubled and tripled and so many times in our culture. Um, so much so that we don't even, it's not even... We don't even. We just recognize it as kind of normal. That's that's how that's women look. That's the pose. position. That's the kind of pose, and so that may have been her most difficult. Well, let's not get crazy. Uh, it was difficult work for her to do to transform those into what she has, which is sometimes humorous, actually, and sometimes kind of crazy, <laughs> or it turns up the notion of the pornographic by saying, "What were you looking at?" Yeah. This is so silly. Yeah. Or, you know, and she does a whole bunch of things like that in that room um, with, a, with a very difficult and very, um, very formal <laughs> images because that's the formal image of, of our era, right? That's the formal figure of the, of the female body. And yeah. to me, I think that's kind of the beautiful trick is when she's taking these images, making them monstrous... And they still remain sexy, but on different terms. Mm -hmm. it's, that's what I was sort of getting at with the um, asking of the viewer, like, do you still think I'm sexy? And it's kind of like, of course, mm -hmm. you're totally sexy. I think that that is the, um, it, it's not like a second wave feminist uh, anti-pornography stance. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's, um, recognizing that sexiness and harnessing it and rearrange, making it more for a different kind of audience. Mm. Mm. What about, the, do you sense a, a, a kind of humor and, and you talk about joy in it, but there, there's a certain, those early collages when you're first coming in, that one wall that, where there's that really weird creature that looks like it's got a bird's head mm -hmm. and then those sort of blue, you know, lingerie yeah. stockings. I mean, yeah. it seems to be to be sort of wickedly funny as well. And, and you don't see a lot of people coming out of the show laughing, but I wonder if, are we, <laughs> are, are we paying too much attention to... The, the below the surface and not actually looking at the way she forms the humor in these conjunctions. I, I think those are funny or scary or, but not um, in the way that uh, a friend of mine talks about them as sort of, uh, she's made up a bunch of gargoyles and hmm. things, right? Which scare both the, uh, both the represented and the, and the watcher or, and I, I find those funny, yes. I find the figure in, um, you call this civilization, that I think that that, that, that figure has such intention that it's, it actually rises. The, what I'm interested in is the thing that rises up. You know, it's, it's overburdened um, mm -hmm. by many, many things. And it's, it's um, attached to itself all kinds of 
you know, this big long arm that it can use or, uh, so out of all of the dross that comes at it, it collects what it can and it has this intention of rising and it is posed in this intention of moving forward. Um, not as the not as the ugly thing that's been created or that's been imagined by some other imagination, but by what it has managed to collect and, and how it has managed to survive the onslaught. She, she does a very interesting, but if you think about the title, I know we all want to say you call this civilization, but it? she takes the, the demonstrative pronoun yeah and makes it the first word. It's actually this you call it. Oh, and call. that's a very different way of reading. Yeah. In a sense, it's a, it's a, a reversal of the, of the expectation of the language. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not so much a question. Right. It's, in fact, a statement uh, that carries with it its sense of irony. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's very deliberate yeah. on her part. I think that that's the way she shapes language as well, because yeah. she, she's a very literate artist as well. Yeah. I was going to say, a lot of the humor comes through in the titles as well. With the, I have, you know, it's sort of funny possibly on a reading that yeah. I have, have peg leg nightmares or a shady promise. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mm -hmm. think there's something that's yeah. like a wink to like the, the, the viewer that you have, you realize that whatever the promises of capitalism, the promises of sexual freedom are shady promises that are meant to be mm. questioned and mm -hmm. not just taken on gullibly. I want to get a sense from you, because you, you also make art out of material. How do you read the complications of what she does? She's not just collaging, she's also mm -hmm. drawing and painting and splattering. I mean, how, how difficult do you think the making of these large-scale pieces would be? Oh, they're incredible. The, I've, I mean, she talks about in her video that some of the pieces take six years. Not <laughs> six years of literally laboring on one piece, but six years for the layering and the meaning. And um, I think she's... Uh, artisan in terms of how mm -hmm. she's, and she's developed some of her own techniques as well with the mylar and she must have an incredible knowledge of what um, what chemicals and what liquids will make what effects happen. I think that she's really developed that, a really keen sense of that. In the Border Crossing interview, she does talk about how much she's learned about materials and pores and all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, mm -hmm. it's interesting. She calls her, her work desk her operating table. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, think, I think she means yeah. that as a kind of surgeon in lots yeah. of ways. I mean, there is a, there's a yeah. kind of a, a reclamation process. Yeah. This is about surgery yeah. to help save lives rather yeah. than just recognize that they're broken and wounded and fragmented, yeah. which is consistent with yeah. how you're reading it. Yeah. But also she talks about when she started doing the pinup series that I quoted from that. She talks, I didn't read the rest of the quote, but she's talking about how the, they were about um, examining the, the obsession with body augmentation in part as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that she would see herself as a surgeon in that kind of way too, an anti-surgeon maybe. And, mm -hmm. and body, because a lot of those works also came out of the recognition in so many war zones, so many limbs are being blown off by landmines and so because of the culture she comes from as well she's also reflecting on that so it's not just about surgery it's about amputation mm -hmm. and then what has to happen to staunch to save the life i mean to make the wall stand mm -hmm. to use your unusual reversal dion what's happened to you today that you, i don't know <laughs> I, don't, I don't know <laughs> i saw the wall i saw the blue because she made it blue and i thought well you know there's a, there's a reason for that and and uh, it, it isn't completely destroyed so I don't know. 
Would you read, you did a, a, a beautiful reading, a, a, a kind of poetic reading of that body of work. Would you argue that, that all of the show is in a sense post-gender, post-racial, that there, that's, the, that's the better read of it as well? That is our hope beyond this wire. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if I did a post. Maybe I'm going too far, too, too quickly or something. Um, but, and maybe I'm just in the space of my, my last book of poetry where I sort of put to rest all of the, all the gargoyles of you know, our culture um, and about how, how those were made. Uh, where I talk about the, um, the 19th century human zoos where you know, people were displayed, people of different cultures were displayed um, and what that display uh, displayed at world fairs, et cetera, which then turned into places where scientists went to do um, study, measure, measure human beings, et cetera. Uh, and then the sort of advent of, uh, of photography, which then repeated these images, these sort of made up villages and made up images millions and millions of times to where we come to the point where we see particular people in the world in particular ways. The same female gesture, if you will, uh, of desire is also the gesture of, there are, same, there are gestures like that of race. And so we come to look at people in particular ways. Um, but, but these are sort of dead things. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're shorthand for something, but they're also just dead objects. They never existed. Um, and they, but they've come to stand for who we are and how we look at each other. Um, so I'm, I suppose I'm in a mood to put all of that in a little box and put it away and see what remains. Not so much what remains, but what is. Um, but, but, you know, these reclining kind of... These heads just reminded me of that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, the way in which he had, in, in fact, encased them in a kind of um, a cabinet. Uh, and put these cabinets on this wall. Um, and their, their constant movement within the cabinet. Mm -hmm. Do you know, because if at those human zoos people actually looked, the spectators actually looked, they would have seen a kind of constant movement which had nothing to do with them, in a way. Or which had nothing to do with their desire for spectacle but with the everydayness of the, those contained in the cabinet. This is so fascinating to me, what you're saying, because it feels like a move in analysis and critically looking at the world that um, moves from simply recognizing representation and social construction. It's like, so gender, race, yeah. culture is socially constructed, but then so... I always say to my yeah. students when I'm talking about social construction, it's like, it's not that then once we recognize that our genders, our yeah. identities are socially constructed, that we can then be lifted up out of culture and, um, you know, yeah. taken to this place where we can see what woman would be outside of culture. Mm -hmm. But maybe this idea of looking at what is, what is, mm -hmm. gives a, uh, like a tiny glimpse of that. Yeah, it's a really tiny glimpse, but uh -huh. yeah, it's what, like, it's what it we got. It feels like a bit of a dream glimpse. <laughs> it's what we got. <laughs> it's, it's what, what we got. We got 
you know, yeah. I, I, we, we should open it up to questions now. Um, I, I, I'm sure you have some, and it's, this is always the most difficult time. Who's the first person who's going to ask the question? <laughs> well, there you right go. There. No one's shy in this audience. Yeah. Right, we already have our first question. Uh, Hello. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I just wanted to thank all three of you for your insightful comments um, about the exhibit, which I saw a couple days ago, and it's stayed with me ever since. And when I first saw them, I was like, oh my god, these images are so perverse, you know, um, because they're made up of these porn magazines and all this stuff. But then, again, with that closer look, you see that wink, and then you start to feel kind of that these images aren't perverse, they're more, like, alluring, and all, and all of these other things. So I, get, I don't know well, if that makes any sense. It does. But it, it is interesting that the, some of the so-called sexiest poses where you'll have a lovely kind of buttock turning around, what, what is contained inside that image is a mother holding her child. That it completely frustrates. The, I mean, and, and her seduction, is, it's very clever. I mean, she wants you to look closely at those images because as soon as you look closely at them, you realize that it's the typology of the gesture that's got you, but the content you're being given. Now, that's real subversion. I mean, yeah. that makes general idea look like they were naive in some ways. <laughs> I say that in a positive way. So thank you for your observations. They're, they're very smart. I'm uh, David Most, and I, I think had the good fortune of being able to uh, curate this exhibition. Uh, here, and I really just wanted to say how, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this work for quite some time, and I must just underscore how incredibly uh, wonderful I think the thoughts that you've shared tonight have been, and really uh, allowed me to think about things in a way that I hadn't, despite my uh, closeness to the work, and my, you know, many conversations over about the last two and a half years with Juan Geishi. Uh, so just one thing, because uh, maybe it's useful around the ARC postcards that have come up a few times. That's that dark room on the right. Uh, when you come into the exhibition, uh, you, you know, Juan Geishi is pretty explicit about having excised and eliminated all of the apparently, you know, the juiciest parts of the pornographic images. And so I think there's, you know, this consistent and high level of intentionality about inhabiting the pose and then eradicating um, why the pose has been constructed and also constructed uh, in terms of that individual image, but then within our culture. And, you know, just to underscore that, because the way it came up, I thought it needed a little clarification. You know, and the other content piece is that the postcards themselves are uh, by an American photographer working extensively in Africa named Carol Beckwith. And so the title, The Ark, derives from a big glossy coffee table book uh, that Carol Beckwith, who first went to Africa in the 70s, uh, created, came out in the 90s, and it was called Women of the African Ark. And in this way that you're talking about the doubling and the, the way that Wangeshi uh, inverts uh, expectations, um, she's clearly, you know, not just playing on the heritage of those images, but then also playing on the title and all of the resonances around that title. 
Uh, I did want to say that I never thought about the sort of inside and outside in the way that you articulated it. I thought that was really fantastic. I hope we've been recording uh, this <laughs> evening because it's incredible content and we should figure out a way of uh, extending it beyond uh, now. And then I just wanted maybe to end with a, a bit of a question, maybe just a request for more elaboration from Dion. I love the way you posed the wall, possibly as sky, as ocean, and then as a wall. And you spoke about the wounds as, as rust-like, but I'll just say I always thought of them as flesh-like and lesions. Uh, I guess wounds is, is the term that's there, but I wonder if you know, maybe that has something more to do with the body and if you might be willing to go in that direction. Am I willing to go in that direction? I don't know. Say more. <laughs> well, uh, if it's standing, um, and in the space, I guess, that the wall is, is flanked by two windows. So I think it's between uh, an inside of a museum and an exhibition space and an outside of the world. And that's actually my favorite view in the exhibition. We built uh, with Frank Gehry incredible uh, undertaking institutionally and, and physically institutionally. When we were deep in construction, we first had to undergo heavy destruction and, you know, I caught myself standing in the space, a pristine space, and although the Lind Galleries, the name of the galleries of this exhibition, weren't uh, the most intensively revised spaces, they did get upgraded significantly, and the windows, revealing the windows that had been covered over was, was a move. So, so this wall sort of hovers between the windows and I think between the outside and the inside. And you know, it's the outside of Toronto. Watch uh, the seasons change. But I think it's uh, a, a beautiful space for this piece because one, one's mind wanders. Hmm. I, don't, I don't know how to address the thing except that I love what you said. But <laughs> um, no, I think my interpretation of it is but one. Um, uh, my sort of yesterday head could see that wall in a whole other different way too. That it's uh, that it's also a wall against which people uh, people are killed. Obviously, you know, uh, it's the pockmarked wall of uh, of uh, I don't know. Mm, uh, Congo, Bosnia, uh, um, Palestine, uh, everywhere too. Do you know? Um, against which, you know, we dream. Um, so yeah, there are so many ways of coming at it. Um, I, I, I just approached it this way. Um, Quintessentially, it's blue, so there's a there's a kind of gesture in our minds about what blueness means to, about what what is blue in the world. Um, I I thought the wall is not destroyed, but it is, uh, but it remains. Yeah, um, it's not fully, um, 
it's not fully blasted away either, you know? So many things. I think we have time for two more questions. There's one here and one there. Sorry, Robert, did I just cut you off? No, 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 no I was going <laughs> to ask for another question. Do we... I, I'm not sure how I'll be able to articulate this, but I, I, I really appreciate the different ways that you've described the wall and, and the, the other side of things, or the inside-outside. And what occurred to me when I was listening to you was the um, idea of inside-outside, um, an incubator or incubators that those images reminded me of uh, barely alive, but changing, growing, needing a lot of attention kind of uh, beings. And that I wanted you both to speak about um, the healing aspect of this show, the fact that wounds heal, uh, even though it takes, you know, incredible um, work on the part of the collective body to do so. So to me, I, I'd like to ask that question, is there something very barely being incubated, very much on the verge of life and death, um, inside, outside, healing and dying? If that speaks to you at all, what do you see in that? I have nothing soothing to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think wounds always heal. Mm. They don't, you know. They, they kill shorter or longer. Um, sometimes they heal. Uh, but something happened. So I, I, I don't know about that. I, and I don't know if always art, we must reach there. Mm. I, don't, I don't think we always have to do that. I don't think, I don't think art heals. I don't think it has to. Uh, I think it should damage some people. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think it, I think it should damage. And, um, it could do a, a number of things, you know, but it doesn't have to heal. It doesn't have to heal everybody. And some of us just fall off the back of the truck and are wounded. And, you know, that's okay too. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I, yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of the readings that I've looked at about the work talk about these creatures as being regener regenerative. And <clears throat> there is something hopeful in that, that, you know, the monster is created through all these different processes and the monster is actually beautiful and strong. And But I tend to also agree with Dion about that wounds don't heal. I mean, particularly depends often what kind of health care you have access to and <laughs> clean water and, and things like that as well. The other, the other thing I was just thinking as you said that the monster created, I, don't, I think that the monster was before. Hmm. That is not the monster that's created. Something's created, but that's not the monster. I know, okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it suddenly just hit me, like yeah. that's not the monster. The monster is the The monster is so yeah. something else, yeah. right? You know, the monster is the violence. Yeah. The thing that we kind of try to figure out how to, you know, get up out of is not the monstrous thing. It's actually, it's actually the, um, uh, at the risk of, it's actually the heavenly thing, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And the exciting Just thing the is what you were yeah. talking about where it seems yeah. like some of the images are asking the viewer, what are you looking at? Yeah. 
I think, too, that there's a tendency, I think we tend to, to, to think in binaries because it's a convenient structure and, we, and, we, and we're all really at heart Hegelians. We want to kind of resolve those binaries. And in fact, I think that what's so fascinating about, about Mutu is that she resists that at every turn. And it's the, it's the subtlety of her shifts that are shocking. I mean, metonymically, she can make a, a motorcycle stand in for a whole body part in a way that you think is absurd and shouldn't happen, and yet mm -hmm. it works perfectly. And it's the subtlety of, of those moves that, that I find shocking in her work because it's, I don't think anybody is doing it better in that way. So it's really not about resolution. It's about a constant sense of movement, which mm -hmm. is this idea that Dion has of the kind of becoming of the pieces, that they keep moving on us uh, and in a, in a very, very beautiful way. Is there another question? There is. There's... We, we, we'll we are no... Is that okay? Oh, you have the time? Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, I was just want to say I was going to ask um, a question when I, uh, you first started and I started to listen very hard and I've found this an incredibly thoughtful panel and I want, must say my question related to um, my first thoughts when I first looked at Mutu's work was the um, comparison with surrealism, which a lot of the violent images and the recombined limbs and so on came out of the horrors of World War I quite profoundly, but also the surrealist works like Mutu's also had an edge of humor to a degree. But I think what's been brought out in the conversation between the three of you, in particular perhaps Dion, um, this, um, the understanding of the regenerative, which is the word that I think Allison used, just now, and um, Dion's perception that um, this is very, very different. Superficially, it looks like, sort of like, perhaps references surrealism, but um, this has been an extraordinary discussion. We've had no referencing of other artists. We've had no discussion of other movements. This is a fabulous discussion. It's absolutely <laughs> just so wonderful to have a discussion about an artist that is just on the artist and not this desperate need to contextualize within the, the larger framework of the art. So uh, mine is a thank you rather than a question. Good thing Sally didn't get here because she would have done all of that for us. So her absence is, and is I did, deeply appreciated. I did reference feminist art, yeah. Um, yeah. but not the boys. <laughs> didn't mention the boys. Forgot about them. I just have a quick um, comment and question as well. Um, I, did, I didn't hear Dion saying that it was post-racial or post-gender at all. I mean, I, you know, I think what I appreciated most about what you said, Dion, is, is I think a couple of things is the is that you're talking about is almost a, a need to bear witness to it, right? To just, to just appreciate and bear witness to it, um, which is part of why I had a lot of trouble with the video that accompanied the exhibition because there were these kinds of ways of talking about the work, you know, um, post-colonial and feminist that seemed to be codes of containment. And I think um, it, what the work has raised or is raising for me is, is a kind of space, really, that we just need space to continue to trouble, um, as you're saying, Robert, the, the kind of dichotomies around the political and the aesthetic. And it's amazing that we're still having that trouble today. Um, but, you know, for me, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about 
the geometry of these compositions, the sense of color, shape, texture, the work in collage, the cutting, the being cut, the stitching. Um, and to be able to, and this is, um, I suppose, the question for you, to be able to sort of think about the genealogy um, around collage as a black diasporic art practice, you know, from Bearden to Mutu, mm -hmm. which is why, as much as I, I really love the panel and appreciate all of you, I wish that there would have been a black Toronto visual artist on this panel to be able to talk about process and talk about that kind of gene genealogy, specifically in terms of of, um, of collage, and also I think reading practices, right? That this is a kind of meta-dialogue, reading and looking practices, and even the problem of talking about black art. So um, if you could just sort of respond to um, quickly maybe ways of thinking about collage, just sort of think through what's happening there with this sort of sense of the fragments and the sense of um, the detritus or the hybrid heritage of the moment that she seems to be working through. Lovely observation. You, uh, Alison, you, you're taking notes for your class, and you have to stop doing it's that. It's not my to, class. <laughs> you, have to, you, have to, you have to answer this, gentlemen. I know, but I'm... <laughs> uh, uh, I agree that it would have been great to have a black visual artist on the panel to talk about um, the genealogy, but I mean, I wouldn't necessarily expect that that would be, of course, what they would talk about either. Uh, we weren't directed in what we had to talk about for the panel. Um, and I also think that I didn't want to talk about uh, kind of outsider art or art that comes out of the diaspora in relation to Mutu, in part because of the context where the work, work's being exhibited, but also uh, in part because of um, her educational background with an MFA from Yale and a, um, Cooper Union. a, 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 MA, a BFA from Cooper Union, meaning that she'd be well aware of these uh, other uh, art movements as well that I talked about in relation to the work. But I do agree that it is something to be considered. I considered it greatly when I was um, putting my talk together, the problem of speaking about black art. Those are your words, right? But I don't think what I'm saying no. is separate from what you're saying. Oh, okay. It is quickly interesting that in, in Lorna Simpson's uh, video, Corridor, the two-channel video, the woman playing both the antebellum woman and the 60s woman in the kind of modernist house is Wangeshi Mutu. So she, Lorna Simpson cast her early on as a student, one assumes, in this, and in some senses Simpson has now you know, disavowed some of that earlier work. But there, there was a whole trajectory we could have talked about, about coming through people, you mentioned Renee Cox, and so many artists, who, feminist artists, who are dealing with the female body, black artists, that would have been really interesting to extrapolate as well. Uh, and there's a, just a whole pile of work that could be done in, in placing her in that remarkable trajectory of, of resistance. I mean, and, and that's sort of where it, re where it begins, it seems to me. But I think, you know, I think the panel is not eternal. <laughs> it doesn't have to do everything. 
Yeah, it does, did what it did. And, but I think what you point to with that statement is the small space that black, that art by black people occupy. And therefore, each occasion must collapse everything. And I think that's difficult. It, it doesn't have to. We can have another talk. And also, can, to, <laughs> to know, know what the, I mean? Uh, it doesn't have to be, pardon me, it doesn't have to be, uh, I recognize that, that there's a really small space in which these conversations take place, or very rarely they take place. And so we want to fill them in. And sometimes we do, because there's only the small space to have them done in. And that's also a disservice to what we do. We can have a hundred conversations, not just one where we have to pack everything into it. You know, as, when I first started to write, I always thought, this is the only book I'm gonna write, I gotta put everything in it, man. They're never gonna get me, to, they're never gonna give me a chance to write another one, I'm gonna put everything in this book. It's a terrible book, okay? So, you know. And there's not a lot of spaces that are created for these conversations. And directly, there's only ever been, to my knowledge, three solo exhibitions for women of color at the AGO in its history. And only one solo exhibition for a male artist of color. I could and be none wrong. from I Toronto, as far as I know. Yeah. I have one in mind, by the way, if anybody's in the AGO <laughs> listening. Say, what's the name? Grace Chana. She's been painting in this city for 100 years and has beautiful work and should be here. <laughs> I, I, I want to thank you and the audience very much for your observations and I certainly want to thank my colleagues up here, uh, Alison and Dion, for a, a quite remarkable uh, series of entrances into this uh, remarkable exhibition. So go and see it again, it'll keep changing on us all. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you. I, just before we all go, I too would like to thank you for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And indeed, this will be podcast very quickly from our website. And then next Wednesday, May 12th, we have um, Lynn Cohen will be talking. So, thanks. part of the Grange Prize. And we promise many more conversations like this. <laughs>